Before we start the episode, we just wanted to add a short forward. Not long after we recorded this episode, Newcastle lost one of its stars. We are, of course, referring to rock legend and screaming Jets bassist Paul Wazine. We'd like to dedicate this episode to Paul, his family and friends. Rest in peace, Paul. Welcome to Dad's Talking Dollars, the podcast all about helping all the dads out there make better decisions with their finances and take some stress out of your lives. We'll help you get on top of your loans, mortgages, interest rates, kids' education, and much more. And whether it's a holiday with the family, a new car, a trip with the lads, whatever you want to do, we're here to help you achieve it. Welcome to a new, brand new spanking episode of Dad's Talking Dollars. Folks who are listening out there, now you may already know this gentleman, our guest today, as the kick-ass drummer from Aussie rock iconic group The Screaming Jets. But what you may not know and what we're hoping to uncover today is that he has many other skills such as TV presenter, auctioneer and now he's heading into a successful career path into real estate. So welcome the one and only Mr. Craig Rosevere. How are you, Craig? I'm great, guys. Thanks very much for having me and um, I'm very excited to uh, talk with you both. We're, we're excited to hear your story because uh, there's a lot to uncover today. Now, Craig, tradition has it that Dad's Talking Dollars starts with a dad joke. Now, did you bring your own or would you like to pick from the magical dad joke poll? I've got one that's a pretty crazy dad joke. Let's so go for it. Why, why do cows wear bells? No idea. Because their horns don't work. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny, isn't that's it? Daddy. For, that's Wait. a five-year-old daughter joke. <laughs> They're the best ones. DB, you go next, mate. You ready? What do you call a line of rabbits all running backwards? A line of rabbits running backwards. No a re- idea. A receding hairline. Oh, I like it. <laughs> I like it. So I didn't know if I was going to get in trouble oh, for that one. Damn. <laughs> There's a lot of people just turned off now. Yeah, <laughs> we watch about come back every week. We lose we lose more than we actually get. <laughs> Listeners, Check we're probably it. negative ten by now. I reckon I'm probably going to be delisted from iTunes. Mine's pretty pretty average as usual. Um, sad news is that my uh, grief counsellor died last week. Uh, you know, he was such a good grief counsellor that I didn't even care. <laughs> <laughs> Please stop. <laughs> yeah, that's a wrap. Yeah. See you guys next week, yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. We gave it a go. Can't say we didn't try. Craig, why don't we unpack things from the beginning? Um, that's what we like to do here. Let's, uh, let's start from where it all began. Let's talk about drumming. So how the heck did you get into it and did your parents approve? Yeah, <laughs> Great question. You know, um, being a kid that grew up in the in the eighties, late seventies, I'll tell you, Kiss was probably a big influence on a lot of us kids, and um, yeah, that was what got me into music in the first place. Um, watching an Australian music show called Countdown, I don't know if anyone remembers that. Yep. And um, yeah, I was a big fan of Kiss, and um, I don't know, I just naturally gravitated towards the drummer. And um, I said to my mum, you know, I want to get drum lessons. I think I was in maybe sixth class. And um, she hooked me up and uh, they had drum lessons in at uh, Muso's Corner uh, when it was actually on the corner. And, yeah, I just went along diligently every week and uh, practised my rudiments. And um, then next thing you know, uh, my school heard about it and they needed someone to keep beat for the sports carnival. We used to march around the Oval. So suddenly I'm playing the drums for that. And everyone's like, I didn't know you could play drums. And I'm like, yeah, well, here I am. And then, uh, yeah, joined the school band and... 
one thing led to another. And, of course, you know, as a drummer, you don't just have to join the school band. You've got other opportunities to play with, you know, other people besides, you know, trumpet players and whatnot. And, um, you know, over the years I've been in many, many bands. But I probably started playing professionally around 15 um, in, like, clubs and pubs in Newcastle. And uh, my dad used to drive me there. Um, you know, he'd pick me up from school. I'd take my homework. Uh, set my drums up and he'd leave me at the pub or whatever the venue was and I'd be doing my, all my homework and then, um, yeah, the gig would start like 9 or 10 o'clock and then my dad would come pick me up, you know, midnight, 1am. Um, that happened pretty regularly, in fact. Um, we used to do a residency in one of the bands I was in at the um, the castle, which is now called King Street. And, um, yeah, we Thursday night residency and there I remember, you know, being in my school uniform and things were different back then, you know, the licensing laws weren't as strict and I sort of, um, you know, never went near alcohol or did anything that because I was young and, you know, I looked young and I just want, didn't want to get kicked out. I just enjoyed my music and then, yeah, I just started getting more and more bands and um, still playing in the um, the school band and they had a marching band and, yeah, it just was... It was all, all music. So, you know, Monday night would be um, percussion practice, Tuesday night was... Uh, school band, Wednesday night was another band, was rock band, Thursday night I have off and Friday night was gig and Saturday night was gig and, you know, sometimes Saturday lunchtime. We used to play the Exchange Hotel Saturday lunchtime and then sort of fitting all my homework around that. But I, I never thought of music as a... Uh, a profession uh, because I, I wanted to be a psychologist, <laughs> funnily enough. Really? Yeah. Um, and I was studying hard to, to get into psychology and back then at Newcastle University it was quite a um, competitive um, pursuit. Um, you had to get really high marks and, yeah, I sort of, you know, was just, just really, really focused on that. And, um, yeah, I ended up going to university and, and studying psychology but during that period I just kept getting, you know, requests to do more gigs and, you um, you know, a lot of teaching and it was just obvious that um, it was a very lucrative and fun time and um, I just thought, you know what, I might just uh, put my university on uh, hold and uh, put, follow music full-time, which I did and, um, yeah, that's when things really started to pick up and really I've never looked back, you know, it's just been zoom, zoom, zoom and I'm, I guess as I'm passionate about what I do now as I was back then. I'm as driven, I'm as focused um, and, you know, it's all been been um, an interesting journey but it has has makes sense like people look at me from the outside and say how did you go from playing in the screaming jets to you know becoming a real estate agent but it's very logical I mean I'm hope I'll, I'll explain that today sounds like you made some smart moves we'll get to all that sooner or later I'm fascinated DB and Craig was a 15 year old grommet playing gigs like sneaking into pubs almost like obviously they weren't too bothered about your age and um and just playing gigs while I mean, what were you doing when you were 15? Oh, you don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing sensible. <laughs> Destroying the streets of the Central Coast. Ah, right. Gotcha. I actually have a story because you're also, Nick, a drummer. I am not a drummer. But I met the drummer from the Hard-Ons the other day, Greg. And he was telling me about his uh, upbringing around the drumming. And he was doing up to six gigs in a night. So he'd start wow. underage. And play is in Melbourne, and he'd play all the way through the night. The last one would start at like three a.m. You'd have to get up and go to school the next day. Yeah, we've done. We've all. I think drummers have the ability to do crazy stuff like that. I remember for a period of time, I was doing two Wednesday night residencies at um, in Newcastle. One was at the Ducks Nuts, oh, uh, if you remember that gig, Ducks and the Nuts. other one was at the King Street Hotel of Castle. And um, I, I wanted to play with both bands. It was a Wednesday night. 
And um, I'm like, well, I can't say no to either. How am I going to make this work? So I'd get two drum kits, set them up at both venues, and I'd just organise it so we'd do like a 45-minute set at one, and then the next set would start, and I'd run around the corner, and I'd run back, and I'd That's do that. Insane. Yeah, and uh, I did that for a while, and it was insane. I'd have to have my drinks already lined up next to the drum kit, and it was so funny because sometimes I'd be playing the same song. Within, okay. You know, it's like I just did it without being back to here, and then by the end of that, I was so exhausted I couldn't pack either drum kit up, so I drove back the next day and uh, pack it up. We used to do things like midnight to dawn gig. I remember doing that. Um, you know, very, very vividly, um, you know, you get there. I'd put all the kids to bed and everyone would be asleep and then, you know, I'd have a little snooze myself, set the alarm for 11.30am, get up, drive down the Ducks Nuts and I'd leave when the um, garbage trucks come and picked up all the, the stuff <laughs> with my sunglasses in my pocket, um, which that was crazy times. And, yeah, my record for a night is three gigs. Um, two of them in Newcastle, one in Sydney. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, I look back now and would I do that again? Well, no. <laughs> so, you know, you do stuff, I guess, when you're young and um, you've got the energy and, and the drive. But, you know, these days we do different things. You know, in real estate, we've just had a, a sale in Charlestown, which has gone berserk. And, you know, how many open for inspections was it doing? We were doing two every Saturday. You know, we're doing three through the week, privates, you know, those sort of things. You just do what you've got to do to get the job done and, um, you know, have fun doing it. So it seems like that work ethic's continued on. You know, how long has that been? 35 years of running around at a frantic pace. <laughs> yeah, I still like to do I think you just got to find things that fuel you, uh, resonate with you and, I mean, you know, everything becomes a job at some stage when it gets tough but you just got to find that thing in life that really ignites you and have the confidence and courage to sort of pursue that. Um, knowing that you've got to feed the soul. Good call. That's some solid information there. So, <clears throat> so you transcended from this um, five gigs plus a night, um, you know. Dreadlocks. Dreadlocks, yeah. I'm trying to pitch you a young 15-year-old Craig here. Probably really had dreads. Not at 15. No. Mate, no, I was very clean cut when okay. I was young. <laughs> and for the listeners listening and wondering what the hell a Ducks Nuts is, <laughs> we, we should probably explain what kind of place that was too. I remember going in there, I think I may have just turned 18 and um, I was sitting at the bar. They used to have the pool tables up in the corner. Yeah. It was very dark, yep. you know, very, very dodgy place. And um, I think the first night I was there, yeah, we were involved. We witnessed a... Uh, um, a game of pool go wrong, pool cue got snapped in half and one person chased the other out of the door with a snap pool cue trying to stab each other. So it was, a, it was an interesting place. You had to have eyes in the back of your head. It was great. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> Where are all those seedy establishments now? Everything's yeah. just too clean. Too, too nice. That yeah. time I came up to Newcastle in my youth, we went to the, I think it was at the Leeds Club and it was called the World's Biggest Disco oh. and they gave away the free I drinks. Remember that. I remember that. That well, was at the Workers' Club, yeah, Newcastle yeah. Workers' Club, yeah. For all our Jets fans out there, Screaming Jets, how did you meet the team? Did you know them from school? How did the first rehearsal come about? Yeah, um, so when I was 15, I was playing in a band called Licks. And, uh, they, playing at the Ducks Nuts? Uh, no, we didn't do the Ducks Nuts back then. It's called the Family Hotel oh, before yeah. then. And we did play there as the Family Hotel. We used to do a lot at the Exchange Hotel, Um we used to do the Saturday, Saturday lunchtime gigs there, Friday, Saturday nights. The Marquee Lawn, which is now called The Mark. Um, and then there was a bunch of other gigs that sort of aren't around anymore. But we would we had the same booking agent, so we would do, you know, if we did the Friday, um, there was another band which Dave and Grant were in called Aspect, and they would do the Saturday night. 
and it's exactly the same gigs, just on different nights. And um, over time, we'd leave little, you know, notes and text written on the drum riser and just you know, teasing them and those sort of things. And we got a, a really good camaraderie. And then um, we, we, we sort of knew each other as both, um, you know, bands that were very driven um, and they were always driven like Grant and Dave from the very moment I met them, you knew something was going to happen. And, um, yeah, we just resonated from that drive in music and also, um, you know, Newcastle's a lot different back in the 80s than it is now. Um, it wasn't sort of as, as well-known nationally. Um, it had a really tough um, steel town reputation and no one had really made it out of Newcastle on the world stage. You know, rugby league, there was no big players from Newcastle. There was um, music, you know, there was a few bands that had done well in the past but never really cracked a DV8, um, Rabbit, you know, they were legendary but never sort of cracked it out of Newcastle. And so I think there was that drive just to sort of get out of Newcastle, you know, just, just take it to um, <clears throat> the rest of Australia and the world. So the drive was there and... The work ethic that the Screaming Jets had as well as the talent was the reason why they became so successful. So um, when they were looking for um, a lineup, um, <laughs> they they asked me and the guitar player who I was playing with um, if we would join their band and, and Izzy was a guitar player in my band and we're like, absolutely not. Like <laughs> our Because you're in the licks. Our band's licks? better than yours. Yeah. So like, you're already in a band at this you, point. Yeah, like, you should be joining our band. Like, yeah. we're, we're awesome, you know. <laughs> anyway, so that was, you know, all right, guys, well, best of luck and you do your thing and we'll do ours. And then, um, you know, maybe a year later, suddenly I hear their song on the radio <laughs> and then as you look at each other going, oh, that was a stupid, stupid move, wasn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, so it's like we're like, oh, that's, that's um, yeah, we made a mistake there. But as it turned out, you know, as, as the universe would, would work in our favour, um, wasn't long before they um, called me and said, oh, listen, you know, we've parted ways with our original drummer, would you like to join? And I didn't say no again. Second time. <laughs> yeah, and, and then um, maybe two years later, Izzy joined the band as well. So, how uh, you go. <laughs> wow. Yeah, cool? so we all ended up uh, together where we should have started. Yeah, you're in the right place, right yeah. time. Yep. It's meant to be. So what happened then? So you did you immediately go on the road then? Because you, you're only young still, right? Yeah, no. I was um, 20, 22. Um, so, yeah, I'd moved to um, Sydney after I finished uni and I was playing in bands down there and I was in with a couple of signed bands yeah. and just enjoying the life. And, um, yeah, they were in LA and, you know, they really needed a drummer. So they said, how quick can you get here? I said, well, I'll leave tomorrow. So I jumped on the plane and then um, straight over to LA and, yeah, I had to learn their whole set, which was quite long. Um yeah, there's probably 30, 35 songs in there. Plus I was doing demos for new albums, so there's probably another 30, 40 songs there. So I had to learn a lot of songs really fast. Um, but it was great. And there you were touring around, um, had a tour bus and just um, playing around, you know, all, all the places and having a great old time. So, yeah, can't, can't complain at all. Is it true what they say about the drummers getting the girls? Oh no, I was not wild at all. Funnily enough, um, I was, I was, I mean, I knew those guys were crazy. They uh, were a crazy and still are a crazy rock band. Um, I was, you know, I, I guess it was a hangover from playing in venues at such a, a young age that I, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't do drugs, and here I am joining the. 
craziest <laughs> band to come out of Australia. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was How funny. was that experience? It was, it was interesting, you know, because um, I was kind of worried about that myself, like, mm. on the plane, like, God, I, I'm not being able to keep up with you guys. And um, a classic moment, actually. And it's one I was sort of told um, my my students, my drum students over the years or, you know, music students in general about being able to be yourself in um, any situation, especially amongst peers where you don't have to feel pressure to do what they do. And, mm. you know, obviously the Jets did, the guys in there, do, they could get crazy party animals and I wasn't. And I, I, when I got to the hotel to meet the guys, I just really wanted to get it out and, you know, very transparent. And I said, guys, I know you guys like to party and like to do what you do. I said... I just, I just can't do that, you know, it's just not me. And, um, you know, they were looking at me and it was very quiet and then <laughs> Dave walked over and picked up the car keys off the, the table. He said, great, you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They've been looking for someone like you. That's oh, probably yeah. half the reason they wanted to hire as well. Yeah, well, you know, ironically, you know, if you look at bands that are around, like, you know, say the Rolling Stones, for example, you know, Charlie Watson there, bass player Bill Wyman were the straight guys in the band and Mick and Keith were the crazy ones and you need to have that sort of yin and yang. Um, I think that works well um, in bands but it also works well in business. I think if you have too many people that are like you, um, similar in personality traits and whatnot, you, your business probably won't thrive as much because you need to be able to um, have balanced different chemistries and, um, you know, I found that in – there's a lot of, lot of um, an analogies and similarities between being in a band and being in a, a business environment. Um, I, I use them every day. I, I reflect back on, on moments, um, you know, in music where there's parallels to business and, um, you know, it's, it's good to be in a band. I love it. And it's also good to be in a great um, working environment with people that, you know, you're all on the same bus, you're going the same way, but you don't have to be all the same people. You can have diversity and that's actually where the strength comes from. Parallels, I love it. I would have thought too back then that was what it was almost like a, you know, you were in a rock band, you had to do that. And it's, I don't know, I'd imagine it's completely different now whereas it becomes like a sport, like a business. It's a business and a sport. From media to probably pr preparing, travelling, like if you're playing, you know, say you're playing uh, 60, 100 gigs in a year, it's a full time, you've got to be pretty fit to be able to keep up with it and if you're out all night and live in the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger lifestyle of the 70s and 80s, it's probably pretty hard to do these days. Yeah, well I mean, you know, back in the 90s we'd probably average around 300 gigs a year, we'd play, you know, Tuesday through to Sunday regularly everywhere it was it was insane but that was that work ethic that got us to where we needed to be um you know when we were in in america um we were there for a period of time and you know a lot of people in australia forgot about us and it's like well we're back we've got to come back and you know get back out into every market and we did a lot of hard touring and um over the period of you know maybe two years our album went from probably you know not really um you know, uh, that popular to number one, you know, and that was through the guidance of good management and um, the band's hard work ethic. So, yeah, we just had to get out there and, and do it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's great to have talent, but um, hard work trumps talent any time. So that's definitely something I learned from being with the guys in the Jets and just the general, um, you know, energy and drive. And, you know, there's songs that we wrote and you can hear, hear that, you know, if you hear some of the... Great Jets songs. It's it's all Absolutely. it's all there. It's Absolutely. all there. Yeah. And you you leave a legacy now. I mean, that hard work has made such so many good albums. 
like so many good songs that you've put together that will last a very, very long time. I mean, <clears throat> you still hear like any time one of your songs come on, people just go bonkers. So it's that hard work has reflected a legacy throughout the throughout the Australian culture, I think, as well. Yeah, and and it's while you're sort of there in the middle of it, you don't really think about that. But it's you know now you know mm. twenty years later, you look back and go, "Geez, we did some great stuff." And the band continues to do that. You know, mm. there's still bands, still tours, and um, we've all evolved and um, you know as people and as professionals. And you know, um, I've chosen a different path, not but. I still play music, but it's not my number one um, thing now. You know, real estate is that. And that came from being in the Jets. It really did because, you know, um, it was a thing about what's your definition of success when you're 20-odd years old, you know, as a musician? What, what would be it? And it was like, well, we already had gold albums and those sort of things. But back then it was like, do you own your own home? Do you have a house? Can you buy a house with the proceeds of your touring and your royalties? And, you know, that was the very first thing that we wanted to do was to um, each buy a house, uh, which we did. And then um, Grant, the guitar player um, from the Screaming Jets, he started renovating his house. And I'm like, oh, interesting. Okay, so you can add value. Um, okay, and I saw, saw what he did. And then um, my wife, Belinda, her dad was a builder, so we asked him for a few tips and... Yeah, next thing you know, me and Blinder are sort of, you know, ripping up carpet and, uh, you know, painting walls. And then he says, oh, you, you can tile this. And then we had to learn how to tile. And, you know, oh, you should sand the floors here. And we're like, how do you do that? <laughs> and he showed us. And, yeah, so we started doing those sort of things. So we did quite a lot of work to our um, property. And then um, the bank manager at the time, who I used to – you know, back today where there was a bank manager, you know, and you'd see him regularly. He said, oh, I, I drove past your house. Looks like you've um, done a really good job improving that, you know, with your renos. He said, you should um, you should tap into the equity. And I'm like, what's equity? <laughs> <laughs> and then that's where it all starts. Oh, the floodgates open. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, from there we, we worked out what equity was and then we had a bank manager that was on our side. We had income coming in and then we um, – we started to do it more often. Uh, this was I was still in the band. Mm. We would do that more often, and then, um, you know, we just sort of got our head around how things work, how you add value, and um, yeah. Then we started following the property clock around Australia. So for those who aren't familiar, um, think of Australia as a big clock, and um, you know, certain cities will go up before others. So normally it works: Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth. That's sort of how it goes. And as the market started to rise in um, Melbourne and Sydney, we sort of weren't in a position to purchase. But by the time we got uh, financially ready, we could purchase in Brisbane. So we fly up to Brisbane and start looking at properties around there and um, buying properties in Brisbane and um, renovating them and adding value. And then, you know, later on we would tap into the equity. Quite interesting though, like... You know, we, we, it, it gets pretty tight in property, and anyone who's been in property for a long time, they've they they are in many instances very conservative and and play things very tight because there's a fine line between clever and stupid. You know, so we're trying to keep it really tight. So, um, you know, when we're renovating, we would actually um, put our paintbrushes and everything in our bags, 
and we'd, we'd go up there and do it ourselves. And you Imagine know, you guys going through security. Yeah. You know, you've got all these drum gear and stands and everything, and then there's, well, so what are you doing with these paintbrushes, mate? I'd put them in my drum cases, actually. Paper. Oh, yeah, yeah, because they're on wheels. Um, so, yeah, we'd, we'd fly up and paint some, some, some house over the weekend. It was crazy. I'll never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> Give us an example of between clever and stupid when it gets to the property renovation. What have you learned? What are some key lessons there? It's great to have all the skills yourself and know that, but one thing you have to realise is that, you know, unless you're very experienced at painting or very experienced at tiling, that if you get the right professional, they're going to do it far quicker, efficiently and, um, uh, you know, uh, better than you could. Um, and then, well, how long is it going to take you? Because if it takes you a month to paint a house versus two weeks, you've got what we call holding costs. So what are your holding costs versus what your renovation costs are. And these are sort of things you've got to weigh up because everyone's like, naturally you want to try to save money on, on renovations. But if, if, if the um, focus is purely on a flip, you're also paying mortgages in, in, in the middle of all that and plus, you know, utility costs and those sort of things. So, yeah, factoring your holding costs are pretty important versus, you know, your renovation costs. And also it boils down to what's the um, availability of tradespeople, what are they charging, what's the current state of the market with access to tradespeople, you know. And right now it's very, very tight. So um, you either have to have people that you worked with before that are going to be helpful for you or you do have to do things yourself and having the ability to know how to do it yourself or do the costings. That's important because, you know, you could get three tradespeople and they'll be, you know, it can be light years away in price and, you know, sometimes the cheapest is not the best and mm -hmm. sometimes um, the most expensive is not the best either. So you've got to try to work that out. So, yeah, fine line. You mentioned earlier about success at different ages. I think that's another interesting point I would like to ask you about. If you think about the 20-year-old Rosie compared to now, mm. mature... <laughs> We won't tell your age. What does success look like now and how you, how that's changed with family and being a dad and different roles that you've been doing with businesses and so forth? Yeah, so um, 20 years old, you just want to be in the biggest band in Australia. You want to be the best drummer and you just want to play the best gigs and you just you, you one-eyed about that while I was. Um, now success to me is being happily married with kids, um, a nice home, a career that I'm very happy with and being around people that I'm, you know... I want to be around with every day. Um, so, you know, that takes uh, a different type of mindset. I mean, when you're younger, you can... A lot of things aren't as important. Like, when I'm 20, do I care about having a house? No. You know, do I care about having a wife? No. Didn't care about having kids either. <laughs> it was just really, really, fo you know, narrow focus. Um, now I am still very focused, but on a broader array of things and the balance of that. And, of course, you have to factor in health as well as you get older, you know, um, as well as, um, you know, just having those um, good relationships in your life, um, both, you know, um, emotionally and from a business perspective. It's interesting if you go back and go think, think about the 20-year-old self, if we all did that, wow. But it's like... I try to forget. <laughs> as success, I think the success, it, balance would be a word that plays out, isn't it? It's like you had to go back and tell your younger self, it's okay, you don't have to have it, it's not a rush, you can enjoy life, be present and all those other things that be that seem to be as you talk to successful people as they get older. Um, I listened to a podcast the other day with Anthony Kiedis and Joe Rogan, he talked about uh, love and he talked at the end of it and he said that Albert Einstein had one regret that he didn't 
tell everyone how much he loved. That's what he said to his daughter as pretty much as he passed away. So you can generally prepare for a gig, for a tour. <clears throat> you know, you pack your bags, you know where you're going. How did you go prepping for fatherhood as a dad? Yeah, I was quite excited. Um, you know, we, we, we wanted to have a, have a kid at that stage. I, d- I wanted to have a kid young. Um, which we did. I was ready. I was emotionally ready, financially ready. So I was. It was wasn't like an accident. Like mm. wow, what's happened? How old were you? Twenty six. Mm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was. I was. I was ready. You know, I was ready to have a kid, and it was. It's been great. You know, and he's uh, Corey. Yeah, he's really good. He's um. He's twenty seven. <laughs> and living in Brooklyn, isn't it? Uh, yeah. He's um. He's in Brooklyn. Um, Works um, really good job in cybersecurity, and he's followed his passions and still continues to do so. And your girls, they're a bit younger. Uh, yeah, uh, Gypsy's in year twelve; she's eighteen, and Coco's in year six, and she's twelve. So, yeah, they're both um, very spirited girls, as we all are in our family. So, yeah. What about um, another thing we've never covered? Uh, this will be a good question. Working with your wife, you've done that on and off, but now it's. Team Rosevere? Yeah, um, it's been great. Uh, we've worked together since 2007, full-time. Prior to that, you know, we're flipping houses and whatnot. Um, but, yeah, we've we've had a good relationship from that perspective. Um, a lot of people uh, probably wouldn't work with their husbands or wives or not have the opportunity to. I think it's been good for us and it's, um, you know, to both have – the experiences, the highs and lows of anything is, is good, very rewarding. Um, you know, real estate is a very intensive pursuit. Um, if you do it properly, um, you have to put a lot of hours in. Um, and then there's, you know, there's a lot of a lot of joy and a lot of, um, you know, heartbreak. <laughs> so mm. it just depends on what part of the deal you're at. Um, is it like the lead singer in a band? They... Uh Go out there, create the havoc, and the rest of them have to cover it up. Clean it all up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Hold it together. <laughs> exactly. So Nick, Nick went from a drummer to the lead singer. So. <laughs> but it's almost part of the same spectrum, you know, for a drummer-singer relationship, as is um, the musician-sportsman spectrum as well. Because, you know, Newcastle Knights are doing very, very well right now. Um, but we were very, um, I guess, connected with them back um, in mm. the 90s. So, you know, we would go to a lot of uh, the games and that will come to a lot of our gigs and this is, you know, prior to them winning their 1997 mm. uh, premiership. And um, so the Johns brothers, you know, Billy Peter and Mark Hughes, the Chief, they were regulars in our lives as we were in theirs. And um, that all sort of culminated in the great love fest of the 1997 uh, grand final win, which we then did the, the big gig in Civic Park, which is – that was just – Probably one of the highlights of our our time. Um, that would have been a huge moment. It was from so many perspectives. Um, one that we were very very connected with the Knights as they were with the Jets, and they still play now better. Is the theme every, song you every know? game, and and, and that's that's not just chosen randomly. That's because we've been so connected with the team for so many years as part of the DNA. Of of um, the Knights and you know the Jets were you know probably at that stage the biggest band domestically in Australia you know there was bigger bands like NXS or ACDC but they were sort of then touring um, internationally and with less focus on Australia but we as the Screaming Jets were probably you know 
the most proliferant um, and and most touring band in Australia, and and so then to see them win that and then decide that you know what we're going to just do a big party in Newcastle and uh, yeah, which we did and was part of it. And you know, if you look at um, the scenes from Civic Park and then having all the guys from the Knights on stage and stage diving and you know, then we went out afterwards and yeah, it was really like we had the keys of the city. Any any mm-hmm. any. There was, there was no way any of us are going to get in trouble that day. <laughs> Surely there's a story then. There's plenty of stories, but they won't be uh, They're locked away. What stays on <laughs> happens on the road stays That's on it. the road. That's for sure. Today's episode is sponsored by Coastal Advice Group. They offer financial planning and specialise in helping people like you build a plan for the future. Head over to coastaladvicegroup.com.au and book yourself a free initial meeting. We did some great tours with the Angels. Uh, the Barbed Wire Ball was probably one of the best um, ones. We did that, I think, maybe two or three years. Off the top of your head, be the most memorable. <laughs> <laughs> and straight away I can see the eyes light up now because you just revisited a moment then. We did see so many good gigs. Um, one, of the, one of them that really stays in my mind is um, when we played at uh, the Malula Bar Hotel um, on, the, um, on the Sunshine Coast. And it was the last night before they were going to knock it down and build oh. townhouses. And, um, I don't know where this is going. <laughs> yeah, it was insane. And, um, you know, you, you drive into the gig and they're just the, the biggest lineup you've ever seen in your life. And you're like, what the hell? Like, you're just not expecting it, you know? And then we get to the venue and it's literally, you know, sweat dripping off the ceiling. Oh. And, and, there's just people everywhere and they're ready for it and we're ready for it and it's just one of those nights and, you know, um, my drums were like completely covered in in condensation from just the bodies in there and we really gave gave a great gig and, um, yeah, the place got pretty much destroyed at the end of it and it was just one of those real rock and roll moments. Um, you know, we played big gigs with, you know, 40,000, 50,000 people um, which are great, but I think it's the more intimate gigs that, you know, the real live and sweaty sort of ones that sort of stand out in my mind. And there's some great venues back then, like the Palais um, in Newcastle was a really great gig, a legendary gig. Um, you know, there's gigs on uh, the Gold Coast, they're no longer there. Um, some great gigs in Perth, you know, um, Darwin, Darwin River Rocks, which is a biker gig, crazy times. I mean, there's just, you know... We used to, there's a lot, a lot of things, just going through them now, you know. A lot of the biking gigs were very fun. Craig, you mentioned your dad did a lot of uh, driving you around as a, as a grommet around Newcastle, taking you all your gigs in it and stuff like that. Um, did he teach you anything about money at that age? Is there anything significant you can remember? No, nothing at all from that perspective. <laughs> but but Thanks, one, one thing, yeah, one thing he did really well is um, he introduced me to Deep Purple. Oh. And speci- specifically the Machine Head album, um, which was a pivotal album and music in my life and really helped me. Um, and that would be blasting, you know, Highway Star. We'd be blasting Sunday mornings every week. Then he'd play The Doors. Um, There's a lot of good music that came through our house. Um, the Machine Head album by Deep Purple is, is such a classic. And I heard it so You know, back then it was on vinyl, right? And we wore out two copies of the of the LP just because we played it so often. And, um, you know, I know every single drum lick on that album. And years later, like um, after I um, finished up the Screaming Jets, I joined 
um, another legendary, legendary Newcastle band called DV8. And I was with DV8 for 10 years. And they were actually uh, the precursor for the Screaming Jets. So um, Greg Bryce, fantastic musician and guitar player, he actually wrote Blue Sashes, which the Screaming Jets recorded. Um, so there's a lot of you know linked uh, mm. history there. And I loved um, playing in DV8. But we almost played every song off the... Um, Machine Head album and DVA, which was really, really good. Then, how did you how did you go managing being a father and away from home a fair bit? Oh, it was it was it was tough, but it was tough for everybody in the band. But we had a good camaraderie on the road as well. And as the band became more and more successful, and we got to a point where financially we we're a bit more comfortable, we could um, then stay in like a certain city for at least a week. That was until we got barred from the Dockside Hotel. <laughs> Yes, finally. Yeah. Which, which, <laughs> how did that happen, Craig? Did well, we, it was, yeah. it surprise, was, surprise. It was quite, quite a night, and and funnily enough, it was our favourite venue. Sorry, it was our favourite accommodation to stay in across all Australia. It was a wonderful hotel right on the um, Brisbane River. You could see the the Story Bridge, and everything was really good. Um, we loved the place, and they loved us until this fateful night. So we done. You know, some are some really good shows, absolutely kick-ass shows. And Aaron Chug, our manager, he, he was like, he loved to bring the party to town. Like, he really did, and we were with the party. We had all all the people, we were ready to go, and um, it was off the back of all these great gigs. And um, Sunday night was typically the party night because it's like you have Monday off. Yep. Um, so he, he'd organised over the course of maybe a month of touring that you know, this was the end of tour. Uh, we're going to do a big party at the dockside on the Sunday night, and we'll tell them people this. You know, for for a what for the whole tour, and and anyway, <laughs> what happened is that everyone showed up, and I'm not just talking people from Brisbane. Like there was people from <laughs> Melbourne, and um, yeah, it was crazy. And <laughs> anyway, we met this guy in um, Melbourne who had a had a bus, and he toured around on the bus, and. Um, He'd play guitar and sing songs and he was a pretty crazy beat poet sort of guy. Um, anyway, somehow he got the invite. So we rock up after this this um, our last gig and once again there's a lineup, but this time the lineup's at our hotel, <laughs> right? And and so one of the rules of being on the road is you don't party in your own room. Well, I don't that was one of mine. Because <laughs> then you can't go to bed. It's like everyone's there, other guys love that stuff. So Dave and uh, Paul, they they loved it. So the, the party was in their room, you know, which was great. And anyway, I went back. We, when we got back from the gig, I went up and had a shower and got ready and go down to their room. Well, man, what a, what a sight <sighs> I, I had. It was the room was completely packed of people. Like you could barely fit a sardine in there. There was probably, you know, 150 people in a room that should fit 20 maximum. Oh, my God. And then someone had the great idea to start making more room by getting rid of the furniture, <laughs> right? So furniture's getting, furniture's getting discarded through various means. Um, someone gaffed some of it to the ceiling. <laughs> Other stuff got thrown out the window. It was like a real rock and roll party. And um, next thing you know, um, it's getting pretty noisy. We had many, many complaints. But then someone decided they wanted to um, get rid of the, the stove and rip it out from the wall, which then set off some sort of alarm. <laughs> and bottom line is we, we all got kicked out of this hotel, right? And um, so <laughs> we're like, well, I've got my bag and it's like by this time it's about 5 a.m. and there's a lot of people there and then the guy that came up from Melbourne had this big bus. Well, 
he's like, get out of here, and he's reversing the bus. And in that moment, he reversed over where all the um, the fire hydrants and stuff were for the oh, whole no. hotel thing, <laughs> and it just set off this massive like noise explosion, and there was water shooting hundreds of meters in the air, like a fountain that you know in Vegas or something, and um, it was it was mayhem. It was mayhem. There's just people everywhere, and the hotel manager was going absolutely <laughs> nuts, and there was like. You know, they called the police, there's signs, and then the fire brigade came because of the, the, the hosting, and, and it's like the sun's coming up, and um, it was the funniest moment. Well, I, I vividly remember our manager, Aaron, um, who he, he played the perfect part at this moment where the manager's coming up and just screaming at him, and Aaron just pulls his checkbook out of his pocket, <laughs> and he said, I don't care. Just tell me how much. <laughs> and that was his his attitude. And like, and anyway, in the in the end of we we got barred from that hotel. I think for many years, um, we actually got barred from venues as well uh, along the way for various reasons. But um, funnily enough, they most of them had us back because they'd either changed management or they realised that we brought them good money. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, every we did go back and stay at the dockside, <laughs> but it was a few years later. Rightio, Craig, but enough about the past. Let's talk about present and future. So now it's the licensed auctioneer and real estate agent. Why and what's the future hold? Yeah, great question, DB. So um, as we were flipping houses and then we decided to start selling some to capitalise on the value and buy some more, um, it made pretty good sense to get our real estate licences um, so we could both sell our homes and um, sell other people's homes. Um, I was studying for my licence and... Um, I had regular study times. One day I was out surfing at Merriweather. I love surfing. Surf was pumping and um, I look at my watch. Guys, got to go. I've got to go. I've got to go study for the rest of my licence. they you're crazy. It's pumping out here. I said, I've got to get it done. And then um, there was a fellow out there, um, Sam, he said, oh, you should come along to these auctions tonight. We're doing some in town. Um, I work at a cafe, but um, it's the real estate agents uh, are doing it. And I said, all right. And he said, come along. And I went along and it was like, Wow, it was like the Colosseum and the auctioneer was like the gladiator. You know, it was just amazing and um, it was it was full. There's like a 200 people there in a natural – there's like an amphitheatre. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is awesome. Like, I want to do that, you know. So I waited for everyone to, to file out and the auctioneer, um, his name's Damien Cooley and he was very – oh, he still is very famous. He's on the block. He'd run it seven times, you know. And um, I went up to him at – at the um, end of the auction while he's packing up his gear. And I said, oh, hello, Mr. Cooley, my name's Craig. And, geez, I love what you did. Like, I want to I want to do that. <laughs> How do I do that? And he said, oh, he looked me up and down. And um, he says, oh, cut your hair, shave off your goatee, pull out those earrings, buy a blue suit and come back and see me in two weeks. Wow. So I'm like, interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm learning. So I did everything he said. I went and cut my hair. Shaved off my goat, he pulled out my earrings, bought a blue suit, turned up two weeks later, he didn't even recognise me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a lot of people didn't in town. Um, and so uh, I said, hey, I'm back. And he said, what? And I said, you told me to do this. He goes, oh, all right, eh? so you're serious? I said, absolutely serious. And then over the course of maybe a year, um, he would like mentor me and you know, explain to me what he was doing and why he was doing it. And then... Um, he said, um, I'm going to go um, to Europe skiing for a little while. Um, while I'm away, there's this big competition on for auctioneers. 
um, novice auctioneers and uh, was put on by the Real Estate Institute of New South Wales, he said you should go in that. You know, that's something to really aim for. So I, um, you know, I, I took some tips and he gave me some training and um, I ended up winning the, the, the competition. Oh. And um, he came back from his trip and he said, oh, how'd you go? I said, I won it. He goes, oh, that's great news. He said, what are you going to do now? I said, I'm going to work for you. <laughs> um, and, and so I did. Um, and I, I went, he, the company was at Sydney Cooley Auctions. And um, he said, I said, Dama, I want you to put me in the nastiest part of, of Sydney um, I, I want to get, I want to get roughed up, you know. I really want to get toughened up in, in as an auctioneer. So um, yeah, we uh, he sent me off to a place called Panania. Um, a lot of people there, they're all developers, and there was only two types of um, properties in Panania. There was a, a red house with a blue roof, and there was one mm. next to it that was a newly built duplex, yeah. right? So all developers wanted to do was knock the um, you know for a traditional bungalow down and build the duplex and there was multiple multiple um, businesses um, entities that wanted to do it, it as very very competitive um, but they saw the agent and the auctioneer as the enemy and they were the ones that wanted to win so we would go into battle every Saturday and um, they were big lowballs loved to lowball so if you wanted a million dollars for the property they wanted to give you 500 you know. If you wanted one and a half million, they wanted to give you 500 It was like that mm. sort of thing. So we, we just, you know, went in there and we knew it was going to happen and we just had to go hard and they went hard and, you know, it was an arm wrestle but in most cases we got the prices we wanted. Um, and then we could bring, as a team, me and my wife, we could bring extra things to that because we had the renovation experience. So, you know, preparation for sale um, and Blinda, my wife, does styling as well. So we, we kind of had the complete package in that regard where we could, you know, offer advice on um, preparation for sale, styling, selling strategy and negotiation. So mm-hmm. between the two of us, we had the whole thing. And that's what, that's what we did, you know. We became selling agents and, um, you know, the complete package is something that we do regularly. We just did it with the property in Charlestown um, where we set it up and we got, you know, an amazing price. We had over 20 offers. It was, it was just really, really good, really um, exciting. And it's just, you know, finding um, owners that uh, trust you and resonate with your experiences. And, you know, when, when, when everything's right, it's like, you know, being on stage in the band where it's just like, it's just beautiful. Mm. It's just so cruisy. It's just like you feel like you're above, above the clouds, and yeah, that's what we strive for. And you know, when everything everything comes together, that's what it feels like. So yeah. So one thing people probably get to see Craig on his social media channels is he does a lot for charity. He does auctioneers regularly, attends the events. I'm not sure if he loves the event more or the auctioneering <laughs> part. Maybe both. But giving back must be something important to you as well. Yeah, it is. Um, it's something I've always done. You know, when we're on tour of the Jets, we used to go to all the Ronald McDonald houses um, in all the hospitals in the capital cities um, and there were some very, very um, poignant moments there and there was something that our manager, Aaron Chug at the time, um, was very mindful of because, you know, we're young guys, it's all happening for us and it was, I think it was a way for him to keep us connected with what was true and real in life. And, you know, if you go to, um, say, Ronald McDonald House where there's been parents and they're there every day and um, they're just, you know, it's, it's hard and then suddenly the biggest band in Australia walks in and we're full of energy and it just takes their mind off it for a while and um, we would, you know, donate proceeds, you know, from our gigs and whatnot um, to the Ronald McDonald House and um, that was a relationship I kept after I left the Jets and um, I was doing some things with Ronald McDonald House in Newcastle and then... Um, 
you know, as as I became an auctioneer and learnt to become an auctioneer, um, they they were having a charity ball, and I said, oh, could I do the auction? You know, could I do the charity auction? And they said, sure, and I did it, and it was great. You know, we just like had a great time, and we earned a lot of money, and. Um, yeah, from there, other people, other organisations like the Mark Hughes Foundation, I, I look forward as much to the event as to the auction um, because as an auctioneer, you, you just know when you can just get more out of them. You know, <laughs> they got more and why not? The, a lot of people work so hard to make those events happen, um, a lot yeah. of good people and it's, you know, for, for one ball they do once a year, for many it's the main component of their fundraising for that organisation and um, it's important that we get as much money as we can. So I, I really do enjoy that. But, yeah, during ball season, as we call it, there's one on every week, you know, and I'll probably almost at the end of that now where I've had an auction, charity auction on every week for maybe the last two months. And um, I've got not one this weekend but one next weekend. I did one in Sydney last weekend for Support Act, which is um, to help people in the music industry who maybe haven't um, <coughs> done as well as some other people that might need help with certain things um, and there's a charity for that as well. Unreal. Yeah. And I, I auctioned off um, uh, a dinner with, with Barnsey and Jane, his wife. So Barnsey and um, Jane have got um, a cookbook and they uh, enjoy cooking together. So they've done this cookbook and as part of the charity auction, it was they would come to your house and cook, cook <laughs> um, dinner for you and That's 20 people. Awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. So good. What did that go for? Oh, I think we got about ten grand for that. And then Mahalia, his daughter, said, um, "I'll come if we get an extra couple of grand. I'll come as well." So we started it again, and, <laughs> and we ended up selling it. It's funny because we ended up selling two, selling it twice. So it's like we sold it, and they're like, "Oh, but this guy missed out." Well, I'll sell it to you for the same price as the winner, and. Now we, we doubled our money. So. Oh, how good is that? Yeah, it was great. Oh, Barnsley would have been stoked. Free dinner cooked for him. A yeah. couple of glasses of red. Really good and a lovely guy. And, and all we, for a good cause. It sure was. So it gives you a real buzz, that's for sure. Been fantastic as I thought that's it would great. be. We yeah. didn't have to do too much talking this time. No. I knew he would hold, hold the microphone well and truly for us. Fascinating story. Anyway, how do people reach out to you, Craig? If they need any support, I'm guessing, around buying, selling, real estate, just want that... One little tip that you can share with them. What's the best way to get in contact? Yeah, and I'm happy to uh, provide advice as well. So you can call me on my uh, mobile, which is 0425-342-182. Uh, you can look me up on socials. So I'm pretty easy to find, Craig Rosie Rosevere. Um, got my own webpage, teamrosevere.com. Um, Instagram, any, any way you want. Um, you can Google me and my number will come up. So it's quite easy or... You know, if you're down Merriweather Beach anytime, just ask around and uh, I'm not never far away. So there yep. you go. He's a very approachable guy, ladies and gentlemen. If, uh, so don't be scared to go and say hello. Craig, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today's show. Thank you so much for your time, mate. Awesome. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, geez, I tell you what, there's probably only skimmed the surface really, didn't we? It's like <laughs> yeah, episode two <laughs> next yeah. year. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel. You can also find us on Instagram where you can leave a comment on what you'd like to hear next time on Dad's Talking Dollars. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we work and live, the Awabakal and Warami peoples, and pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Mm-hmm.